Hello and welcome to WISMED On Call, a podcast from the Wisconsin Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm your host this week, Mark Rappentine, Senior Vice President of Government Relations, and with me today is Dr. Ken Simons, the Chair of the Medical Examining Board. Um, we're recording on Wednesday, February 20th, and like all things, news can change and may have changed quickly, um, so let's get started. Um, Dr. Simons, first of all, thanks for participating today. My pleasure. Glad, <laughs> yeah. glad to be with you, Mark. It is a snowy day. You uh, practice, obviously, in, in, at the Medical College of Wisconsin, where you are a luminary, um, and much like you are on the MEB, and you drove in today. It was good to see that you have a big old pickup truck. Yes, indeed. To get around. <laughs> to get around. I, the, the Chrysler Sebring convertible that I had that was 14 years old was kind of like the Fred Flintstone mobile. At the point that I traded, got rid of it, I shouldn't say traded it in, I was able to stick my side, my foot out the left side so that I could stop it like Fred did in the old days. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> so I decided we, to upgrade. I, I think we have policy against that kind of thing for, for car safety. Well, well, first of all, thanks for being here. I think, I think that um, a lot of people don't exactly know necessarily what the Medical Examining Board does each month. They're the only regulatory board in the state of Wisconsin that's required to meet every month. I get to see you on, uh, on, uh, on Wednesdays uh, every, every once in a while at the big old Hill Farms building out on University Avenue in Wisconsin. Um, what, what did you know about the MEB before you even started and what was your impression and when you got onto the board, what, 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 was, what was the experience like? So, so what I knew about the MEB was that it licensed physicians. I knew that it disciplined physicians. And that was largely it, and I knew that there were things that I wanted to change if I would ever get the opportunity to be on, on the MEB. Uh, and so I think that when I got on the board, one of the things you know is we changed, and with the assistance of the Wisconsin Medical Society, was the license policy. Because my concern was that, you know, in my day job, I'm in charge of 900 residents and fellows in 93 different ACGME accredited training programs. And the residents, at least when they started, don't get a license. In this state, they didn't have a license. And they were unprotected. And I, I can't, I, I'm trying to unblock it. You probably know the lawsuit where an enterprising attorney tried to say that, well, the youngest among them, the intern, because they didn't have a license, were unprotected and therefore didn't participate in the IPFCF, the Interpatient Family Compensation Fund. And the Supreme Court ruled that they didn't, they were in fact covered, mm -hmm. but I still wanted them to have a license. So we went back and changed the license rules so there's now an REL, a resident education license. And in addition, we upped the ante a little bit, which was we required two years of graduate medical education training to get a full and unrestricted license. And the reason for that is Wisconsin at that time, we had the lowest bar in the country. Mm. We allowed an international medical graduate to get a license with only one year of graduate medical education training, whereas every other state required more than that for international medical grads. One year for U.S. grads, but more than that for, greater than one year for the international grads. And we wanted to be fair to everybody and say, okay, it's gonna be two years for everybody. Um, and we don't wanna discriminate, we just, but we wanna set the bar a little bit higher because we were getting people, when I first got on the board, that had cobbled together some training from two or three different programs and we had no choice but to grant them a license and it just didn't feel right. So we, again, in trying to protect the public, uh, that was the most uh, powerful thing I think we've, we've done at that point. So it kind of makes sense that you would be interested in coming to the board and you apply and you're appointed by a governor and then, then you're there about something that kind of fits in with your, your day job, if, if you will. Sure. But then, probably once you got on the board, you, you know, one of the important things is 
like you say, protecting the public. That is really the center of what the medical examining board is supposed to do. Uh, what was it like to start uh, being in those closed sessions and reviewing cases that come before you and explain kind of what is involved in um, how a case gets to the MEB, what then the physician folks do, what the folks um, at DSPS, the Department of Safety and Professional Services, where the MEB is administered, what do they do? How does that kind of work? Sure. Um, so it's like drinking from a fire hose <laughs> when you get these cases. So it starts with a screening panel. A screening panel starts the, is the day before the MEB meets. So on Tuesday afternoon, the third Tuesday of the month, generally speaking, the screening panel gets together. That's two physician members. It's a uh, public member of the board, which we have three of our 13 members are public members, and then um, a member of the DSPS staff, generally one of our attorneys. So we review. And it, in the old days, it was boxes, literally two filled paper boxes of material to, to go through. So like records, patient records, records and stuff pa like patient that. records mm -hmm. and what have you. Now it's all electronic, but it takes a while to download. I mean, and now with the electronic medical record, um, it, there's a lot of papers and a lot to go through. But what happens is it starts, to your point, it starts with a complaint. The complaint can be filed. Uh, by any member of the public. It can be filed by a family member of a patient who believes his significant other or her significant other has been harmed or their child, what have you. We also get a lot from the press. So if an article, I've reported cases based on what I've read in the newspaper and go, okay, DSPS, you need to open up an investigation about this because we've received this information that looks like it may be, have been a violation of our standards. And so then they do that. So when they do that, they open the case. It then goes, they gather, they, they write to the respondent. Um, they get the information from the complainant, there's the person who complained obviously, get the data. They then go to the respondent, ask for a reply, and I would uh, advise anybody out there that's listening, um, that if you get a request to respond, respond because the board will discipline physicians who don't respond and just ignore us. And I can't remember the movie, Mark probably knows, but uh, it was, you know, we, I will not be ignored. The mm -hmm. board will not be ignored. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to respond. And then once we have the respondent's uh, documentation, the, it goes to the screening panel, the screening panel looks it over, and then at the screening panel they decide, okay, should we open this? or no, this is just a billing complaint. We don't get involved in billing complaints. Let's close this. And then some of those that are formally opened, but then after investigation are determined to be, there was no violation or there's insufficient evidence, we then close them at, in the closed panel, mm -hmm. in the closed part of the meeting. Mm -hmm. And about how many cases do you think are coming in each month or so? So there, generally speaking, the screening panel does about 50 cases a month. Okay. which is not insignificant. I, I, I can't recall how many we get, six to seven hundred a year. The number seems to be going up and with the advent of the opioid uh, changes and, and requirements, there have been a lot more from older cases. I just was told that this morning that there are cases from many, many years ago that people are now bringing forward saying, oh, we, we were treated badly back in this. So it's, the volume's going up. Interesting. All right. Um, and so uh, uh, the, the range of discipline that the MEB can meet out mm -hmm. is actually quite broad. We're not talking about 
like the federal um, the federal conviction or the, the federal crime standards where you're kind of in a slot based on right. what was the crime and what's your history. It's, it's it can range all the way from pulling somebody's license mm -hmm. uh, down to an administrative warning. Correct. Correct. And what goes into that kind of discussion? So the discussion goes. So sometimes there are systems errors. The doctor has learned from his or her mistake, and they've said in the process of investigation, I've changed my practice, and so compliance has been gained. We're not allowed, as a board, you know, we're not allowed to punish. It's to protect the public, not to punish, to rehabilitate the physician, because we need each and every one of us, and to deter. And so an administrative warning is the mildest form of it's not really discipline, but it's a mild little letter that goes in the file that says, if you do this again, we're, we're, we, we may have to take some action. But it, it's relatively mild. It might have been a minor technical, and we're just not mm -hmm. dealing. Then there's reprimand, there's education orders that are, again, reportable, but it's an education order. Um, and then, as you said, we can go all the way to a summary suspension, and, and we have. But we, you know, we're, we're very cognizant of the impact that that has on not only the physician, but the patients that that physician sees. So it, there's, there's a lot of thinking that goes into it, and we carefully deliberate on what we can and, and what we should do. Again, always keeping in mind that it's the public's protection that is first and foremost. Are there areas that you, that you often see that, that get to you via a complaint um, that result in a, in a more moderate to a higher level of discipline, or do they, do they fall into different categories? I kind of cavalierly call it um, the sex, the drugs, and the cowboy physician type syndrome, where someone just tries to do too much for their own experience. Is, is it kind of those buckets? Or? Those, those, are the, those are the biggest buckets. <laughs> One of the other buckets that when I first came on the board that was shocking to me was that we didn't... Um, look at the continuing medical education credits. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Physicians attest, we simply attest. I know the attorneys out there, their, their CME, their legal credits, get uploaded automatically and you get to see them. We simply attest. And so when I came on, I said, well, how do we know that they're doing this? Well, we don't. I said, we don't audit. So as you know, we've put in an audit and we have gotten a number of physicians much higher than I would have liked and the board would have liked, but nonetheless, I think the word has gotten out. I will tell you that we had a physician who, we, who said, but don't you know who I am? And I said... Literally, literally. Literally. And I said to the, my, my board mates, we, we can't, that, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter who some, everybody has to be treated fairly and equitably, and so we did. I mean, it's kind of judicial-ish in a way, isn't it? Right. But we, we can't play favorites like that, and, and I, that's what I, I want everybody out there to know, that no, it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what your job is, um, and we're, we're going to do the, the right thing. The law and the, the rules of the rules. The rules of the rules, and we're going to do the right thing, and we're going to enforce it equitably and fairly and evenly. Okay, so something that is definitely, um, you mentioned the opioids issue, and that's something that is obviously much more pervasive in the medical world in a whole bunch of different ways, including... Um, you know, the medical examining board is required by law to get a report from the uh, EPDMP, the, the uh, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, about who are the, are there outlier folks that are prescribing. There aren't any names that are associated with, but they just do the plot points. Uh, you can see this in some of the quarterly reports that the EPDMP does. Um, and the board decided to open up 14 cases in the last uh, 
seven months or so, seven that were physicians and seven that were physician assistants that showed up as outliers in those cases. And that's, that's kind of a new area. And I know that you all went into this new area that you were told you needed to do quite carefully for a number of reasons. Can you talk a little bit about that world? In terms of? Well, so there's, there's it, it kind of reminds me of the DOJ letter that went out on February 4th. You know, when we've talked about that at the Medical Society and the letter that, that uh, the U.S. attorneys put out to 180 different kinds of prescribers that said, hey, your prescribing numbers are high, um, and although your prescribing may have been medically appropriate, we're watching you, essentially is what sure. they said. Um, in the public session meetings of the Medical Examining Board, I have been impressed as this opioid crisis has continued throughout that the MEB has been very careful. Yes, that we need to protect the public. That is our number one thing. At the same time, you don't want to push the pendulum too far the other way where if you start just doing random crackdowns without any kind of justification, you're going to terrify folks to actually take care of opioid patients that might actually need some kind of weaning and you're not going to have folks that are able to do that. So when the MEB started this, this, um, okay, we need to start looking at cases that are referred to us from essentially the Controlled Substances Board because they're outlier prescribers. You all didn't just say, all right, let's yeah. bring the hammer. Okay, right. I mean, we, we saw the data point plots, as you did, and as you well know, it was pretty striking and obvious that there was a whole cluster of folks that may be practicing inappropriately, but these were way out there to the degree that the board felt it needed to look at it. Um, and, and, and those individuals. I mean, to think about all the physicians that we license in the state and to only have seven licensees and seven, P, seven PAs, who are also licensees but in a different category, that was pretty impressive to me that overall I think we do a good job, but we, we felt we had to look. And again, we're not suggesting that they've done anything wrong at this point. It's just that they were so far off, it would have been inappropriate for us not to do anything and not look at it. Um, and to your point of the Department of Justice letter, yeah, we, uh, yeah, I, um, I was at the F I was at the FSMB board meeting. Federation of State Medical Boards. Uh, I apologize. That's yes, okay. Federation of State Medical Boards, and we had a, uh, an, an admiral there from uh, the Department um, of Health and Human Services, and we, I brought it up to him. I actually sent him the link, uh, and told him, and he said, "No, we all want to be on the same page." He said that you know the Department of Justice. His and the, and the administration all want to, they don't want to stop doctors from prescribing. They, they are aware of what that letter can do and how it can scare the living daylights out of somebody to not do the right thing and abandon patients, which we don't want. These patients need, some of these patients need their medications. And so just be aware. So we, he thought it was inappropriate at that time is what he said and that he was going to look into it and hopefully they will. Um, I think it's it was critical because I, it, we we heard from everybody uh, that this is going to stifle doctors from doing the right thing. Uh, our vice chair of the, of the medical board, Dr. Westlake, has been in contact with the attorney general in the state, and I think in the eastern part of the state, if I'm not mistaken, talking about uh, how we can maybe move forward on this um, so that we don't scare people and don't stop patients from getting the care that they need while addressing the very serious issue of the opioid crisis. It's got to be interesting for you as a physician. I mean, you are, you are the chair of the board that is in charge of potentially disciplining those that are in your profession. And it's got to be kind of a, an interesting balance to have to weigh that month by month with these cases that come forward. How, have you kind of 
has there been some kind of evolution in how you look at these things? Or uh, you're, you're kind of a no-nonsense guy to begin with, and so you know the black and white stuff makes some good sense. You know, you know, uh, you know do you know who I am? Is not a line that would work on you ever. So it doesn't surprise me there, but it must have been kind of it, it must be interesting to do this kind of stuff. It is, and, and I think it was the subject of one of my chair's corners one time, which clearly you haven't read. In the newsletters. In the newsletters. No, no, I, 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 I vigorously read and uh-huh. with great attention read the newsletters. Each so morning. there was one where I said, it's difficult. You know, you, you're constantly being barraged with cases of alleged misconduct. And you have to remind yourself that the overwhelming majority of physicians are doing the right thing by their patients and, and taking care of the, the citizens of Wisconsin. And so I always keep that in my mind that, okay, d- don't judge them all by, by this particular case. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's a balance and no nonsense, but it's, some of these cases are obvious. And, and so when you get the obvious one, that's fine and dandy. When you have the subject, that's why it's two members and it's a member of the public mm-hmm. that are deciding whether we're going to open and go forward. And then the board will debate the merits of the case uh, once we come to some kind of resolution. And I think it, it's really important. I, I remember we had a case where the docs were going one way. In my heart of hearts, I felt, no, this isn't right for the public. And, and so I said, public members, you've been particularly quiet here. What do you have to say? I want you to tell the physician members what's on your mind. I had no idea what they were thinking. I was cautiously optimistic. And they said exactly what I thought they would say. Mm-hmm. And it changed the whole tenor of the conversation to where some, some things happened that needed to happen, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Because it was like we physicians sometimes get caught up in it. And that's why I think it's really important that the public members bring this great perspective. And they need to feel, that, yes, they can speak up. They, they know they can't speak about the medical issues. They get that. But there are certain issues that are about the morality issue, about boundaries, about and, things boundaries like that, yeah. and things like that, that they, would you want that person taking care of you? And, and I use that as the standard. I can tell you we had a case, this is for our friends here that are listening. Um, when I was being confirmed for the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact, yeah. one of the senators asked me about a case that was pending before the board. And I said, I can't comment. He said, well, what do you mean you can't comment? I said, well, because if I comment, I'm going to give you inside information about how I feel, and then I will need to recuse and won't be allowed to vote on that particular case. I said, and we need every single vote to, we're going to take a license away. And, well, but I said, I can't do it, and I'm just following the rules that you, Senator, wrote. That's what you have to do, because there was, it was a pending matter, and we needed every vote. Uh, you talked a bit about the uh, FSMB, and one of the things that's, that you have done in your tenure uh, since joining the board is um, have joined a national uh, organization that is the Federation of the State Medical Boards that is kind of a think tank, I like to put it, for the state and territory um, examining boards, whether it's for MDs or DOs. Some states have split. What's that been like? What got you involved in, um, in getting involved? In, talk a little bit about that organization and, and what it means for Wisconsin. So it's the... it's represents 70 licensing boards 
and people go, why 70? There's only 50 states. Well, we have 50 states, but as you said just a moment ago, there are 14 states, I believe, that have osteopathic boards separate and distinct from the allopathic board. And then there are the territories, Guam, Virgin Islands, uh, Washington, D.C., so that, that, that's where we get to the 70. Um, I got involved, I attended a meeting and back in the day when I first got on the board, and then they tapped me to uh, chair the SMART committee. It wasn't SMART because I was on it, it was anything but SMART because I was on it. But it was the state medical uh, regulation of telemedicine. And so I chaired that committee, I got active, then they put me on the best committee, so which is the Board Education Service and Training. Wait, wait, wait. So I'm neither smart, the smart committee and, or the best and the committee. Best committee. So I'm oh, neither boy. of those things, as my right. wife will freely tell you. <laughs> um, but regardless, so they, and then I ran for the board, mm -hmm. and I lost my first time. Um, there have only been three members of Wisconsin's board that have ever been on the Federation of State Medical Boards. I was number three, and actually one of them chaired the board. So back back in the 1980s, I believe it was. So it's, it, so I got involved um, because, like when I was involved with the Wisconsin Medical Society, I believe that we physicians are in the best position to govern ourselves, take care of ourselves, and if you don't step up, you know, you get left behind. And so I thought, and it, I also felt it had been 30 plus years since Wisconsin had been represented. So I ran, I lost. I was encouraged to run again. I ran again. This time I won. Um, and I think that brings me the perspective of seeing what's going on in other states, how we can learn from each other, because what the Federation of State Medical Boards does is it is not binding on anybody. It's a confederacy. We all know how confederacies work. Um, <laughs> that's why I call it, it a think tank, because it, it's really not, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't dictate anything. That's right. But they'll come up with guidelines and what we believe are best practices, and then states can decide what they want to adopt, what's right for them or not. And so we changed, we put in some regulations on telemedicine as a result of the SMART committee. We, there was, there's a board report coming up um, at the April meeting of the Federation of State Medical Boards where the House of Delegates meets, just like the Wisconsin Medical Society has a House of Delegates. Its board, its House of Delegates will meet and they will vote on boundary issues. That's what we're, we're looking at right now. So there's a draft report that you got to see. Uh, it was an open session earlier mm -hmm. today, mm -hmm. and we had no comments, and hopefully it'll pass, and then we'll look and see what we need to do legislatively if we want to implement any of those things. Mm -hmm. So so it's it's um, it's just a resource for the boards to be able to say, hey, it, oh, this came up in Montana, or we've seen a lot of this going on in the Southeast, and so it helps you guys do um, Kind of, kind of stay up to snuff on what's what, and it it helps us, but it also helps them because they have a very they have a very strong lobbying action that they do, and as an example, state licensure. Oh sure, yeah. Versus versus a national licensure, which right. some were pushing for. Right. And you know, I, I think we're in the best position to protect the citizens of the state of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin MEB. If we have a licensee who, and, and we run into this frequently, and this is not a knock, I'm employed by the VA, I have, I have a sixteenth mm -hmm. of my salary comes from the VA, um, but the VA only requires that you have a medical license. So if you have a medical license and you're practicing, let's say, at the Zablocki VA Medical Center, and you have a license from Kansas, and you've not met the standard of care for a veteran who's being treated, who lives in resides in Wisconsin, what's Kansas going to do about that? Mm -hmm. And what's a national licensed body going to do about that? 
And so I strongly am supportive of state-based medical licensure, which the Federation believes in. And so they went to the uh, Congress, and they, so then we got the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact Commission. I was going to ask you about the um, about the compact because as you have as you started at the MEB wanting to accomplish some things, there have been other things that have come up because of FSMB and the ideas and the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact is one of those things. Um, I think a lot of people didn't realize there's a there's a sunset built into the law that was part of the the bargaining that happened in order to pass it um, years ago, and um, I know there's there's going to be a bill in the state legislature that will get rid of that sunset to allow that interstate. Um, license to continue. Why you, can you talk a little bit about how successful that, that has been? That's been very successful. Um, you may have the numbers. I, I've, I've forgotten them. Um, but there have been a number of Wisconsin physicians that use the with compact as their principal state of licensure. Mm -hmm. every, and there are a number of physicians that have been granted licenses in Wisconsin as well. So it's enhanced the state of Wisconsin. It allows our doctors to go elsewhere in rapidly and to deliver care to other, uh, other parts of the country where they get their license. And it also allows many more licensees to be in Wisconsin to take care of our patients, particularly in rural areas. So telemedicine things, teleradiology, teledermatology, telepsychiatry, as long as they meet the standards. And it's, it's a pretty gold standard to go through the compact. You, you can't have had any discipline. You have to be board certified in, in, you know, in, your, in your field. Um, and it, it's the, but we looked at it, and 80% of the physicians nationwide met that standard. So it was pretty good, and, and so it's it's done well. And actually, Wisconsin was the first state to issue a license from the compact, so which we're very proud of. And more states are joining up. And, and we more, see. Yeah, there's over. We have over half the states now, and there's a, a few more that have introduced legislation. So, my expectation is by the end of the year, we'll probably be at 30 to 35 states that will have joined the compact. That's pretty impressive. And, and really, the benefit and the shortcut, if you want to put it as a shortcut way, it's just that once one state verifies that all of your basic like demographic and education information has been checked and blessed, then the other states say, okay, yes, we don't we don't have to go we, through that rigmarole at the same time. Exactly. Or, or again, I should oh, say. Again, right. right. Yeah, but then those physicians are still subject to all the responsibilities that a, each individual state has for their discipline, so it's, they need correct. to make sure they know that. That's correct. So if they, you know, Wisconsin is 30 CME credits every two years. Most states have a much higher bar than that, and they need to be respectful of that. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. Or they'll get disciplined. Mm -hmm. So, But it's going well. Right. It's that, going that, very, that, very well. Because uh, you know, the MEB doesn't necessarily get involved in the uh, the day-to-day the -day legislation that goes into the capital, but this right. is one that they definitely will. Right. And, so. and that the Federation is what was vitally uh, helpful in getting that off the ground. They got federal grants that helped the commission get off the ground. And the other thing is um, there was the North Carolina dental case, right. which the Federation has they got legislation in last year. It was not acted upon. It's going to be reintroduced again this year about stopping treble damages against boards for enforcing and doing their work, which was a, a, a terrible decision in my opinion. It was not the best case, but it is what it is. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, so we're running short on time here. Sure. I, I just wanted to, to close by asking you: Is there is there anything you think that um, you know the, the just the regular practicing physician in the state that doesn't know much about the medical examining board? What what would be your elevator speech to them about? Uh, what they should know about the MEB and and um, and how it helps them in their practice. I think it keeps the bar high for all of us to make sure that we meet the standard of care that our patients expect. I think they should understand that um, 
the members of the board, including the, are, are not paid princely salaries. <laughs> the, um, some of us cho even choose not to take the robust $25 that we're granted for, for a meeting. And that we do it because we care about our profession and we want to, and we care about our patients and we want to, and we want to make sure that we continue to stay regulated by ourselves and not by some outside entity. And that we, we put a lot of time in. It, it's volunteer work, plain and simple. But it's, it's important, it's valuable, and we are doing our best because I think at the end of the day, every physician wants to be proud of what she or he does, and they want to be proud of the members of their profession. And that's what the board accomplishes. All right. Well, I always enjoy sitting in the back row uh, each month. Uh, appreciate the work that you all do, and it's very separate from the medical society. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a big wall there, but um, appreciate what you do and appreciate you taking the time to come in, Dr. Simons. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure. I always love seeing you in the back row. <laughs> and when I'm quiet, especially. No. <laughs> well, th that's going to wrap up this edition of WISMED On Call. If you like what you heard, visit our website, www.wisconsinmedicalsociety.org, and look for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions or feedback, send an email to communications at wismed.org. Thanks so much for listening.